us guidance and you give us direction as we look at the scriptures. Help us, our Father, to see in your word the things that you have for us. Might your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In an article entitled, Christianity is Not a Popularity Contest, John Parrott opens with the following statement. VIP is a local magazine in our community that captures the rich and famous at various events. Page after page, the smiles of their faces seem to say to the reader, you're not good enough to be in this magazine. Whether it's our local towns or New York or Hollywood, our society has its VIPs. Whether businessmen, athletes, movie stars, or musicians, these people have reached the upper echelons of society and receive special treatment accordingly. Rarely do they have to stand in line at restaurants. They go behind the scenes at sold-out concerts. They receive praise from adoring fans, and often they intimidate us, at least when we encounter them in person. Judging others by their outward appearance has been temptation for mankind throughout the centuries, but God expressly forbids the world's favoritism within the church. When we look at the book of James, one of the things that we need to understand is that it's written not long after our Savior has died and has been raised. It is written by the brother of our Lord and Savior, James, so he had had background uh, throughout his life of hearing what Jesus had to say of course, he becomes leader in the church in Jerusalem, and we know that it, this has to be written before 62 A.D. because um, James dies in A.D. 62, um, probably more written in 45 to 50 A.D., so we're not long after. We're within 20 years of the time that Jesus Christ has died and uh, then he has been raised thing that's interesting about the book of James is that we call it an epistle, but there is nothing in the word, there's nothing in this book that indicates that it's an epistle. It's a group of things that come together, that are brought together, and oftentimes the book of James is viewed by people as the, um, as the Proverbs of the New Testament, for he puts together those things that are needed in order for us to be what God wants us to be. And what I'd like to do is look at the passage that we had read for us today in James chapter 2. Let me hasten to say that reading that I had um, may in itself demonstrate partiality because he doesn't really know what the people in the magazine are saying. So it's easy to do that. So in the passage before, I believe that James indicates that the royal law bans partiality and calls for good works. Those are nice words, aren't they? The royal law calls for us to ban partiality and to do good works. What I'd like to do today is look and see what the law, the royal law, is really all about. And we find that being written in verse 8 where it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs 
over judgment. So when we look at the concept of the royal law, one of the things that we see in this particular passage is that the idea is that this, this uh, law really literally means it's the law of the king or the sovereign. It's a, it, it's a law that's been laid out by the leader of, of whatever group this is. And what we're doing is that we're looking at this as a church. So the leader of that particular group is none other than the king of the Christians, Jesus Christ himself, Jesus the Messiah. Over at the school, I give vocabulary words, and anointed was one of the vocabulary words that I gave. And I asked them to uh, define that, and it's anointed as one, or it is either a person or an object that's been set aside for God's use. And I told them that basically the Greek word for anointed is none other than Christos, Christ. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed. If we were to look in the Old Testament, it would be Jesus the Messiah. Messiah means anointed. So what we basically have here is that we are told that we have a royal law or a law of the sovereign. What does the sovereign have to say? What law has he laid down for us? And in this particular passage, that law becomes royal for the Christians when, they, when, when Christ lays it before his church to follow. Well, what is, the, what is the basis for this law of the sovereign? Well, we know that it's the Old Testament. We know that uh, Jesus said to, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The commandments come from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. I love the context of uh, uh, Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in the righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Kind of an interesting concept there, isn't it? You'll love the Lord your God, or you'll love your neighbor as yourself, and it means that you're going to be right in your judgment. You're going to be merciful. You're going to do justice. You're going to do the things that, 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 that uh, God would, would desire for you. So we know that the person of the sovereign is none other than Jesus Christ in Romans 10, 9. It says, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So basically he's saying, if you do this, then you are acknowledging Jesus as Lord. If we are to be the church that God wants us to be, we must recognize that we exist to fulfill the royal law laid down by Jesus. If we are truly to believe, it means that we are giving ourselves to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords to guide and direct our lives. If we are to be his disciples, we will take up our cross, deny ourselves, and we will follow him so that God will be glorified in the things that we do and we say. 
So in order to be a follower of the royal law and have freedom, we must first stop showing partiality. The thing that's interesting about this first verse is what what uh, is the is the way that it's written. My brother, show no partiality. Well, it's a negative imperative in the idea, and it's a negative present imperative. And the idea for this particular group is stop showing per, uh, partiality. Stop showing partiality. So the indication was that even within 20 years of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there was partiality within the church, which was kind of interesting when we look at it. We come down through there and he says, um, uh, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and the fine clothing comes into your assembly, that word assembly there is synagogue, the synagogue. They weren't particularly worshiping in the synagogue, any assembly could have been a drawing together, a bringing together of the people. This was the church of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we get, we, 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 we get ourselves uh, all wrapped up and we need to go out and we need to do this and we need to do that for the poor or we need to stop doing this or stop doing that out there. But what the scriptures teach us is that we need to take a look and see where we are, where we are in our congregation. How do I view things? And that's basically what he's saying to us. And he says, if a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention uh, to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say, the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? I love the way it says this in verse 1. It says, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In the, in, in the um, quote that I made, he, he talks about showing that, uh, placing these people in an exalted place. The word glory has the idea of having weight or, or, or being something that's important or, or having riches or being in control of things. And yet, the way this thing starts is that he says, stop showing partiality. Stop glorifying other people or lifting them up or deifying him when we're talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. In comparison to the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of those who are around us is nothing. It's nothing. Now, I need to hasten to say, he is not speaking here against the rich or having money. He's talking about people who show partiality. It's not the rich that are doing anything wrong at this particular point. It's not the poor that are doing anything wrong at this point. It is those who are showing partiality are the ones who need to stop showing partiality. So I need to get that over it because one of the things we have in our nation today is that there seems to be an indication that if you're rich, you're, uh, you know, you don't care. Well, guess what? That's showing partiality because you've decided what they are like before you ever know them. You're showing what you think before you ever get to know the, new, the, 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 the poor person 
Favoritism is defined as an unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. In James, he uses the example of the rich and the poor. Just by the way the person looked, they were offered a seat or told to stand in a corner. The concern on the part of these people apparently was more for what can these people do for me than what can I do for them. They seem to have forgotten the words of of, uh, God to the prophet uh, Samuel when David is chosen as king. You remember that, don't you? You remember how how, uh, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he says, let me see your sons, and they start coming out. And Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. Tall, dark, handsome, strong. This has got to be the new king of Israel. No, Samuel, it's not. Second son comes out. Surely this is the one. Tall, dark, handsome, strong. No, Samuel, it's not. The problem that you're facing, Samuel, is that God doesn't look on the outside. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And that's what needed to come over into the New Testament church. It's not what someone can do for me, but as a church, what can I do in order to lift them up in Jesus Christ, whether they're rich or whether they're poor? John MacArthur says, we tend to put everyone in some kind of stratified category, higher or lower than other people. It has to do with their looks. It has to do with their wardrobe. It has to do with the kind of car they drive, the kind of houses they live in. Sometimes it has to do with their race, sometimes with social status, sometimes outward characteristics of personality. All of those things with God are non-issues. They are of no significance at all. They mean absolutely nothing to him. We live in a country that wants to separate us by color, by wealth, by so many different types of things, where I came from, what kind of work I do. For the Church of Jesus Christ, those are not options of separation. Those instead are options of how do we work together for the cause of Jesus Christ our Savior and show no no favoritism or partiality. Our concern needs to be to know the spiritual needs of the person and meet those needs by by being the blessing that God has called us to be in the assembly. You know, one of the problems that the the church uh, to whom the uh, writer of the Hebrews writes was that there was difficulties and they were separating. And he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but come together in order that you might encourage each other to build each other up. Our job as a church is to teach God's word, as to pray, as to have fellowship together, because we are all part of the church of Jesus Christ as an assembly. I don't care whether you want to call this a synagogue or a group 
being a people together, or an ecclesia where people have been called out of the world to become part of it. God calls us to know that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, and He has given us, He has given us a law. That law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbors as yourself. One of the great things about the evening service when we do the Kenyan Rite, we start, these are the commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a good reminder when we come together that our responsibility is to love him, and when we love him, then we will be able to meet the needs of those who are around us. So to be a follower of the royal law and to have true freedom, we must secondly start to show the works of God. And in verses 12 through 18, that's what he talks about. We'd go back to chapter 1. He'd tell us that we need to be doers of the word. Well, that comes on over. He, can, he carries it on over into this passage with him. This means that we must move from theology and philosophy to actions of mercy and love. Don't get me wrong. Theology and philosophy in what we believe is absolutely essential to who we are. But it has to be something that causes us to do the things that God wants us to do. Orthopraxy always comes from orthodoxy. If I do the right things, it will be because I have the right theology. So when I look at this passage, I think when we were, uh, when I was over at the hospital as the chaplain there, we had the parish nurse program, which we have here. We still, we still have it, even though it's not supported by the hospital any longer. And I would, I, I would talk to the nurses in their orientation, and we would talk about compassion. And one of the things that I saw over and over, and I would remind them that Jesus was compassionate with people. I looked at passages like Matthew 14, 14. He gets, he, he gets off of, uh, he, he comes to a place, and the people are sick and needy, and he has compassion. He feels with them. There is love that reaches out and surrounds them. He comes to a place where the people are, 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 um, not, uh, they don't know what's happening. They're, 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 they're emotionally down. They're psychologically down. They're, they're like a sheep. It says they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going. And it says he showed compassion. He showed compassion to them. And you'll remember that when uh, he has his, uh, the people that are with him, the 5,000 or uh, whomever, and the disciples say, send them home. You know, they've heard the good words, send them home. And it says, Jesus had compassion. And he says, you feed them. And they said, we don't have enough. And Jesus said, trust me. Trust me. And I think that's where we need to find ourselves. Faith in Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords always leads to doing the works of the kingdom. If Jesus is my king, 
if Jesus is my Lord, I will do the works of the kingdom. In the book of Micah, it asks the question, what does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? When we walk humbly with our God, we go back to that first verse, the Jesus Christ who is the glorious Christ, the one who is lifted up, not lifting up something else that's less than the glory of Christ, but lifting up Christ. The word mandate has become a controversial word in the United States these days. Just a teeny bit. But I want you to know as a believer, you've been given a mandate. And the mandate that we have been given, we have been given, is that we are to love one another. By this, men will know that we are his disciple if we love one another. And so when we come down here and it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And we could get into, if you want to get into theology, we can get into a lot of Pauline and, and James theology there, where does salvation comes. But I, what I would say to you is that both Paul and James agree on one thing. If I am to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I will do good works. My life will be changed. We like the idea of I'm saved from hell, but I'm not saved in order for God to tell me or to lead me in a way that pleases him. You get me out of hell, God, I'm good. Well, one of the things that we need to realize is that when he comes into our lives, our lives change. His spirit, this is what we've been talking about back in Ephesians, putting off that old man that says, I'm the most important thing in all of the world, and putting on the new man saying that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in all of the world, and I need to follow him and be his disciple. If we have placed our faith in Christ as our Savior and as the subject of the kingdom of God, I am required to obey the sovereign law, the law laid down by the king. So we have that mandate. John Piper writes, The glory of Christ is in the gospel is not merely that we are justified when we depend entirely on Christ, but also that depending entirely on Christ is the power that makes us new, loving People. You hear that? The power of Christ saves me. It's also the power of Christ that can make me a new person to love. And sometimes it's not easy to love, is it? Sometimes it's not. Remember, Jesus gave his life when we were still enemies. calls us to love each other. And we need to do that outside the church. But my friend, the most important thing that we need to do is to do it inside of the church. If there are needs that we know that we can meet, whether it's emotionally, 
or psychological or spiritual or physical or material needs. God calls us to do good works because, you see, when we do that, we carry out the royal law. And in that royal law, there is freedom. Freedom to be what Christ wants us to be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law, mandated, no question. It's an executive order. Love one another. Amen.